glad to have you here this morning on this last Sunday in April. If you're new with us this morning, or if it's been a while since you've been with us, first of all, welcome. Glad you're here with us. We are making our way through a series on the book of Acts. It's our habit at this church to take books of the Bible or portions of the books of the Bible and preach to them verse by verse because we want the Word of God to set the agenda. And every time we do that, we have an expectation that God can work in powerful ways. In fact, to that end, let me pray and then we'll get started here. Uh, Father, it is our expectation, as I just said, that when we open your word, you can do great and mighty things. In fact, we know that it's through your word that life comes because your word points to the hope found in Jesus. And so this morning, we pray that we would open your word and that you would work in a great and mighty way, that you would flex your muscle, that you would show us your great power. Lord, we have an expectation that what we're about to do is not an idle task, but rather something sacred about it, that we're opening your word and now we're giving you the chance to speak. And so this morning, I pray that you would just speak loudly and clearly. Please help me to preach in a way that is faithful to what your word teaches. If there's anything I say today that's not helpful, I pray that it would fall on deaf ears. But Lord, that which is of you, that which is from your spirit, I pray that it would land with thunder. Oh God, we ask that you would speak in a great and mighty way this morning. Would you minister to us through your word? It's in Christ's name we pray all this. Amen. So I think all of us have a tendency to start to tune things out the more we hear something. For example, if you've ever flown on a commercial airplane, I would guess that the first time you did so, you probably paid at least some attention to the safety instructions given by the flight attendants at the beginning of the flight. After all, if it's your first time flying, you're not entirely sure what to make of the experience. It's kind of helpful to know what should happen if the plane goes down. But while those instructions seem important the first time you fly, the more you fly, the less you tend to pay attention to them. I'll confess that although I don't fly all that much, I've certainly reached the point where I don't pay attention to the safety instructions at all anymore. I tune them out because I've heard them. And I know I'm not alone in that. If you look around almost any plane when the flight attendants are giving those safety instructions, the vast majority of people on board are not paying any attention at all. Instead, they're talking to the person next to them or they're listening to something on their headphones or they're mindlessly scrolling through their phones. The safety instructions become background noise because we learn to tune things out that we feel like we've heard before. And to be clear, this is not a phenomenon that's limited to airplanes or safety instructions. If you've ever had a teenager, or for that matter, if you've ever had kids, then you know that over time, your kids start to tune things out that they feel like they've heard before. At our house, I sometimes feel like I'm literally a broken record, repeating the same things over and over and over again. Put your dishes in the dishwasher, please. Don't leave your towel on the bathroom floor when you're done showering. Put your dirty clothes in the laundry basket, and for Pete's sake... Please do not throw all of your school stuff on the couch when you get home. Just put it away. These are things that I probably tell my kids multiple times every week, and yet they sometimes act as if they've never heard them before. But to be fair to them, that's kind of the way it works for all of us, isn't it? We all have a tendency to tune things out that we feel like we've heard before, whether it's the instructions of a parent or the safety talk on the plane or even things that are more important. We tend to tune things out that we feel like we already know. It's because of that tendency that I would argue we have reached a danger point in the book of Acts. And we've been in the book of Acts for a while at this point, all the way back to the beginning of September. This is sermon number 27 in the series, if you're keeping count. And we have to be honest in saying that the passage that we're about to look at today is somewhat similar to other passages that we've already read in the book of Acts. In Acts 15.36 to 16.15, the church continues to carry out the work of proclaiming Jesus Christ. It's a continuation of a lot of what we've already seen in the book of Acts. And in that continuation, I would argue, lies the danger. 
like the passenger on the plane who's prone to ignore the safety instructions because they've heard them before. We might be tempted to read this passage this morning and think, ah, we've kind of heard this before, and start to tune it out. But let me plead with you this morning. What we're about to read in the book of Acts is not the equivalent of safety instructions on the plane. Rather, it is the Word of God. It's breathed out by God, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And there is not one wasted word in all of the Bible. It's not as if God had a quota to fulfill in his word where he thought, I need to get to this many words, I'll just say something over again. That's not what's happening here. Every last word in the Bible has a purpose. So while it's okay for us to admit this morning, okay, this passage kind of sounds like what we've heard before in the book of Acts. There's no need to tune anything out because it is the word of God. What I'm going to argue this morning is that in the ongoing work of the church, which again is a continuation of what we've already seen in the book of Acts, there are still ongoing lessons for us to learn. Lessons that should impact the way we live every day. So that said, let's turn our attention this morning to the ongoing work of the church, and let's pray that we would not tune out what we read here, but instead, by the grace of God, we would have ears to hear afresh this morning. So that said, I'm going to ask you to stand at this point, Acts 15, 36 to 16, 15. I know that you've been standing for a while, saying, I'm asking you to stand again. The reason we do that is just to remind ourselves, this is the word of God, and as such, it is due our reverence. Acts 15.36 through Acts 16.15 is our passage this morning. Words are on the screen. You can follow along in your own Bibles. You can listen as I read. Here we go. Acts 15, starting in verse 36. The Word of God says this. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them the one who'd withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysa, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysa, they went down to Tros. The vision appeared to Paul in the night, a man of Macedonia standing there, urging them and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail from Tros, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia in a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. We sat down and we spoke to the women who'd come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. It's the word of God. You may be seated. So in our passage today, I think there are four pretty distinct sections in verses 36 to 41. Paul and Barnabas separate. Verses 1 to 5 of chapter 16, Timothy joins Paul and Silas. Verses 6 to 10, you have the call to go to Macedonia. And then finally, verses 11 to 15, you have the conversion of Lydia. 
But as distinct as those sections might be, the theme that ties the whole message together or the whole passage together is the ongoing work or mission of the church. Throughout the passage, the church continues to advance. The word continues to spread. Now, again, because it's a continuation of what we've already seen happening in the book of Acts, we have to stay on guard this morning against our tendency to tune things out that we feel like we've heard before. Because without question, there are some themes that we see in this passage that we've already seen in the book of Acts. The passage is still valuable because in the ongoing work, there are some ongoing lessons that have great relevance for us. More specifically, there are three ongoing lessons I want to draw our attention to this morning from this passage. The first ongoing lesson is this. The mission of the church is to proclaim the good news about Jesus. Again, the theme that ties our passage together here is the ongoing work or mission of the church. But let's be absolutely clear what that ongoing work or mission is. The substance of the mission of the church is the proclamation of the good news about Jesus. And we see hints of this everywhere in this passage. Look first at verse 36 of chapter 15. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. So they proclaim the word and now Paul's wanting to return back. Let's make sure they're doing okay. We proclaim the good news about Jesus. Let's follow up on that. Verses 40 and 41, Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, how did he strengthen the churches? Well, the rest of the book of Acts would make clear he did that by proclaiming the good news about Jesus and encouraging them in their faith. This continues, verses 4 and 5 of chapter 16. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. So they delivered the decision that was made in Jerusalem, which you may remember from chapter 15. That's when they proclaimed that salvation is by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. They're passing this along, and in doing that, they're strengthening the churches. Verse 10, chapter 16. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And so now they're going to Macedonia. Why? To preach the gospel, verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Now, as the rest of the passage makes clear, what was it that they were speaking about? They were speaking about Jesus. And we know this because Lydia comes to faith in Christ. So in light of everything we've just read, it's safe for us to conclude this. The mission of the church is the proclamation of the good news about Jesus. Everywhere the apostles and disciples go in the book of Acts, they are preaching the word. They are proclaiming the good news about Jesus Christ. I think that's important for us to note because in the modern church, sometimes the mission of the church gets kind of fuzzy. Some today would argue that the mission of the church is to serve the poor and the downtrodden. Others would argue that the mission of the church is to provide quality ministry program for people of all ages. Or still others might contend that the mission of the church is to make a difference in the community. And listen, all of those things are good. It's good and right to serve the poor and downtrodden. There's nothing wrong with good ministry programming for kids and adults alike. In fact, that's a blessing. And without question, every church should strive to make a difference in their community. But as evidenced by the book of Acts and as seen in this passage today, those good things are not the ultimate mission of the church. Now, ultimately, the mission of the church is to glorify God. And the way that we do that most clearly and the most central task to our mission is the proclamation of the good news about Jesus. 
that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that Jesus rose from the dead three days later, and anyone who comes to him in saving faith can find forgiveness of sins and peace with God. That message, the proclamation about the good news of Christ, that we are sinners and he's a great savior, this must be at the forefront of the church's mission, and it's obvious in reading the book of Acts it was for them. So that's the first ongoing lesson from the ongoing work of the church, that the mission of the church is to proclaim the good news about Jesus. Ongoing lesson number two, sometimes the mission gets messy because the church is messy. Now, the messy church is on display in a couple of different ways in this passage. Notice first the disagreement that takes place between Barnabas and Paul. This is found in verses 36 to 40 of chapter 15. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Now, one thing we can appreciate about Luke, who is the author of Acts, is that he does not sugarcoat or whitewash the situation here between Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas disagree, and their disagreement is serious. And Luke does not try to downplay this. In fact, in the original Greek, the phrase that's used in verse 39 to describe their sharp disagreement would indicate that anger and frustration, even exasperation or irritation, were present in this disagreement. Paul and Barnabas, in other words, weren't debating what flavor of ice cream to get at the store and then laughing about their disagreement on the way home. Well, that was a funny one. No, on the contrary, their disagreement is so sharp that they part ways and they go in completely different directions. And at the heart of their conflict was a person, John Mark. Barnabas wanted to take John, who's called Mark, John Mark, with him on their missionary journey, and Paul did not. Now, perhaps you remember back in chapter 13, verse 13, John Mark left Paul and Barnabas in Pamphylia, and he returned to Jerusalem. For Paul, this was a problem. As Luke would indicate in verse 38, in light of John Mark's previous abandonment, Paul was hesitant to take John Mark with them now. Now, perhaps he was afraid that John Mark would leave them again and put them in a dangerous situation. Or perhaps he just didn't trust John Mark anymore. Whatever the case may be, Paul did not want John Mark coming on this journey. Barnabas, on the other hand, did want John Mark to come. Now, you should know that Barnabas was actually a cousin of John Mark's. We learned this in the book of Colossians. So perhaps Barnabas was motivated by family ties here. But more likely, Barnabas was probably motivated by who he was, by who Barnabas was. Barnabas was known as the son of encouragement. And given that gift and that nickname, he likely was one who saw the best in others. So whereas Paul saw John Mark's previous desertion, Barnabas saw his potential, thus the disagreement. Now for his part, Luke never tips his hand in this passage as to who's in the right here. The point is not that Paul was right to be hesitant and Barnabas was wrong, or that Barnabas was right to want to take John Mark and Paul was wrong. That's not the point. The point is they disagreed. And their disagreement was serious enough that they had to part ways and go in a different direction. And in that, we are reminded that the mission of the church is messy because people are messy. Because we are messy. Sometimes people in the church disagree. Sometimes they get frustrated and angry with each other. Sometimes they even part ways and go different directions. That's the reality of life in a broken world. Sometimes things get messy. But the mess of the church is also seen in a different way in verses 1 to 5. 
Look with me again at those verses in chapter 16. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. So here's what's messy about verses 1 to 5. Back in chapter 15, you may remember, the Jerusalem council came to the conclusion, circumcision is not necessary for salvation. As Peter put it so succinctly back in chapter 15, verse 11, both Jews and Gentiles alike are saved by grace and not by circumcision, or for that matter, by baptism or any other work. It's by the grace of God. And yet, despite this conclusion of the Jerusalem council, which clearly Paul and Timothy agreed with, in verse 4, they're declaring that decision to other churches, Despite that, Paul still has Timothy circumcised. So what gives here? Why would Paul agree with the decision of the council, circumcision is not necessary for salvation, and then tell Timothy, get circumcised? To make the waters even muddier, in Galatians 2, verse 3, Paul informs us that he did not, he did not have Titus circumcised because he wanted to preserve the truth of the gospel that we're saved by grace and not by works like circumcision. So why is Paul so seemingly inconsistent? Why does he tell Timothy, you should get circumcised? And on the other hand, why does he tell Titus, don't get circumcised? Why does he agree with the decision of the Jerusalem council, circumcision is not necessary for salvation, only to turn around right after that and tell Timothy, you should get circumcised? What's going on here? The answer, I think, is that sometimes living out the Christian faith is not always black and white. Sometimes there's nuance and complexity. Sometimes it's messy. In this particular case, Timothy was half Jewish and half Greek. And in Paul's estimation, it would be less distracting to the gospel if Timothy were to get circumcised. Now to be clear, and let me be absolutely clear on this, Paul did not have Timothy circumcised because he'd changed his view and thought circumcision was now necessary for salvation. That's not what's happening at all. Given the rest of the New Testament, even the context of this passage, it's clear. Paul did not think circumcision was necessary for salvation. Rather, given Timothy's unique background, half Jewish, half Greek. And given the fact they were still trying to minister to the Jewish people, Paul thought it best that Timothy to be circumcised in order to minimize distractions. He didn't want the Jewish people questioning Timothy's character or questioning Timothy's commitment to his Jewish heritage. So hear this, Paul wasn't waffling back and forth on the circumcision question. Rather, he was trying to use wisdom in each situation to figure out what's best to do here. To quote Bible scholar John Stott, Once the principle had been established that circumcision was not necessary for salvation, and thus that circumcision was not required but neutral, Paul was prepared to adjust his practical policy. In other words, circumcision wasn't necessary for salvation, but it wasn't prohibited either. So depending upon the situation and the motivation of those around him, in some cases Paul recommended circumcision, like Timothy, in other cases he prohibited, like Titus. And in that we're reminded sometimes living out the Christian life is just messy. Sometimes we have to pray, God, give us wisdom. We don't know what to do here. Now, without question, let me make sure I say this clearly. There are some situations where it's not hard at all to figure out what the right thing to do is. There's a clear command of Scripture, and our job is simply to obey it. Tell the truth. Avoid sexual morality. Don't murder. These are clear, straightforward commands that we should obey without hesitation. But other times, figuring out the application of Scripture is challenging. 
Should Timothy be circumcised or not? Should we go to that neighborhood party where there might be things that we, we don't like happening or people saying things we don't like? Should we go in an effort to try to reach lost people? Should we let our kids be involved in this activity or that activity? Sometimes those questions are hard to answer, and we need God to guide us. The Christian life is messy because sometimes we get in disagreements with one another, but it's also messy because sometimes it's hard to figure out what's the best thing to do here. And because it's messy, and because we're messy, the mission of the church gets messy too. That's the second ongoing lesson of this passage. Here's the third. Despite the mess, God leads and directs his people and advances his kingdom. Now, without question, there is messiness in this passage. But know this, in the midst of the mess, God is still at work. Think about the disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. I don't think there's any way of sugarcoating this here. Paul and Barnabas disagreeing in the way that they did was not a good thing. And yet, God used it. Think about this. The mission teams, because of the disagreement, double. And the word spreads further. Instead of just Paul and Barnabas going together, Paul and Barnabas split. And now Barnabas and John Mark go to Cyprus. Paul and Silas go in a different direction. The work doubles. So even in the mess, even in the midst of something that's not good, God is still leading and advancing his kingdom. That same leading and guiding is on display in verses 6 to 10. Verse 6, And they went through the region of Fergie and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they'd come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Tros. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now we have no idea how exactly the Spirit forbid Paul and his companions from speaking the word in Asia. We also have no idea how the Spirit did not allow them to go into Bithynia. Perhaps it was through circumstances. Maybe it was through a prophetic word someone gave them. Maybe God gave them a vision. We don't know. But what's obvious to us in retrospect is God was leading his people in these circumstances. Eventually, Paul does give a vision to go to, Ma or excuse me, eventually Paul receives a vision to go to Macedonia. And this too is clearly, at least from the apostles' perspective, God's leading. And when they arrive in Macedonia, God does work. Look again at the way the passage concludes in 11 through 15. So setting sail from Tros, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So Paul and his companions, they are faithful to carry out the task of the church, proclaim the word. But know this, God is the one advancing the kingdom. Again, the language of verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. Here's the phrase. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. It is the Lord who opens Lydia's heart. In this passage, then, it is clear. God uses imperfect and flawed people to advance his church and his kingdom. The same Paul that disagreed with Barnabas to the point that they had to split ways is the same Paul that God uses to open Lydia's heart. And in that, we're reminded that despite the mess, 
God leads and directs and advances God leads and directs his people and advances his kingdom. That's another ongoing lesson from this passage. Now, having said all that, I think it's imperative that we live in light of each of these ongoing lessons. And it's at this point that we really have to fight against the temptation to tune things out. It would be easy for us to hear this morning, the mission of the church is to proclaim Christ. And that sometimes the mission gets messy because the church is messy. But despite the mess, God leads and directs his people and advances his kingdom. It would be easy for us to hear all that and think, I've kind of heard this before. And yawn, tune it out, go back to normal life. But again, the word of God is not meant to be yawned at or tuned out. It's meant to be applied and lived out. And so in light of that, let me encourage you this morning to respond to each of the ongoing lessons from this passage. Starting with the first one. In light of the fact that the mission of the church is to proclaim the good news of Christ, let me encourage you this morning to actually seek to proclaim Christ. Now you get the sense in the book of Acts that when the early church woke up in the morning, they weren't thinking about their agenda all that much. They weren't thinking, you know, would today be a good day to go shopping? Or maybe should we play golf today? Or should we hop on YouTube and watch some videos for a while? By the way, I realized they didn't have YouTube back then. Whatever the equivalent was, they probably didn't have golf either. Should we just head to the pool and get some sun? No, it seems pretty obvious that they had one overarching goal every day. Proclaim Jesus. Now, I'm not arguing that they never had leisure time or that they didn't relax. I'm not saying they're proclaiming Jesus literally every moment of every day. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying this. It seems pretty obvious as you read the book of Acts that they were focused on one thing more than anything else. Proclaiming Jesus as the Christ. And in light of that, I would just ask this question of us this morning. Do we have that same mission? Or, to take a step back, is this even on our radar most days? If you went to a Chick-fil-A that had no chicken, you would find that odd. Because chicken is kind of at the heart of what Chick-fil-A does. By the same token, if you went to Zesto's here in town and they had no ice cream, that too would be odd. Because ice cream is kind of at the heart of what Zesto's does. And for either one of those businesses to be out of their primary product would raise questions about the leadership and management of the company. Have they lost sight of their purpose? Have they lost sight of their mission? By the same token, I sometimes wonder if we as the church have become the equivalent of a chicken-less Chick-fil-A or an ice cream-less Zestos. Our mission is to tell others about Jesus, but it sometimes seems like we have no chicken and no ice cream. Listen, I'll be the first to admit, my evangelism, my proclamation of Christ is not what I would want it to be. When I hold up the mirror of the book of Acts to my life, I realize there is a serious difference between their boldness and mine. But rather than being discouraged by that, and it would be easy to be discouraged by that, instead, I want to use the passage today in the book of Acts as a motivator to shift my mindset. Instead of thinking about the proclamation of Christ as an add-on to the Christian life, I need to remind myself, this is the mission of the church. As one pastor once said, either you are a missionary or an imposter. As followers of Christ, this is what we are to be about. When I wake up in the morning, I hope that at the very least, the proclamation of Christ would be on my radar. Now, that's not to say that every day I'll get chances to talk about Christ, but it is to say this, every day it should at least be on my radar. Now, church, maybe you can relate to what I've just described as my own struggles. Maybe you can say that proclaiming Christ to lost people is hard for you, too. If that's the case, and if you're in the boat with me, I'm not trying to discourage you either this morning. 
Rather, I'm trying to encourage them. Let's put the proclamation of Christ back on our radar. At the very least, let's commit to start praying daily that God would give us opportunities to share Jesus. I would imagine that if we commit, at least just once a day, I'm going to pray, God, please give me an opportunity to share Christ. I would imagine that that is a prayer that he would respond to. In light of the early church's zeal in proclaiming Christ, it seems to me that at the very least, this should be our goal, that we should wake up in the morning thinking, I hope today is a day I get to share Jesus. So that's the first response to the ongoing lessons from this passage. In light of the fact that the mission of the church is to proclaim the good news of Christ, we should actively seek to proclaim Christ. Number two, in light of the fact that sometimes the mission gets messy because the church is messy, we should expect a mess. Now here's the thing. I think the reason why some of us get disenchanted with the church or others of us get discouraged in our Christian walk is because we have completely unrealistic expectations of the church and of the Christian life. As evidenced by the argument between Paul and Barnabas, sometimes things get sideways in the church. As evidenced by the complicated situation involving Timothy and circumcision, sometimes figuring out what to do in the Christian life is not easy either. But understanding those things is actually, I would argue, key to managing our expectations and maintaining our joy. Think about it this way. If you get married and you have an expectation your spouse will never let you down, and your spouse will always fulfill every one of your desires every time, you are going to be very disappointed. If you enter into parenting thinking, all of my parenting strategies are going to be great, and my kids will always listen to them, I'm just going to tell you, that's going to be discouraging pretty quickly. If you go to a sports game expecting that the officials will not miss one call, and every 50-50 call will benefit your team, oh, you are going to leave frustrated that day. When you live in a broken world, you have to expect brokenness will find you. And as much as that's true for marriage or parenting or refereeing, it's also true for the church and also true for the Christian life. Hear this, there is no perfect church. And every church will let you down, including this one. Because every church is full of sinners, including you and me. Now that doesn't mean that we should condone sin, or that we should just turn the other way if someone is making a shipwreck of their faith. We should absolutely call sin, sin. And we should fight for the faith that's once and for all handed down to the saints. So I'm not saying we should be apathetic or lukewarm in our commitment to teaching what the Bible says, or that we should be okay with sin festering in the church. Saying, oh, well, none of us are perfect. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I am saying, though, is this, that we cannot expect perfection from our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We worship a perfect Savior, not a perfect church. We will let each other down. We will get in arguments, and some, as evidenced here, will even abandon the faith. As I heard a pastor point out recently, just because Judas walked away from the faith, that doesn't mean that the rest of the disciples abandoned Jesus. Judas' lack of faithfulness was not an indication that Jesus was a bad teacher or an imperfect savior. It was just an indication that Judas gave into his sin. Now, I know it's popular right now in some evangelical circles to quote-unquote deconstruct the faith and walk away from Jesus because of the sin of the church. And again, hear me clearly, we should never condone sin in the church, and we should fight with all we have for purity and unity in the church. But just because the church messes up doesn't mean that Jesus is messed up. He's still the perfect Savior. This is why we look to him. We are a mess. He is not. Now, sometimes that mess does get messy enough that people have been in the faith, like Judas. 
I, I guess in the case of Acts, I misspoke earlier. They, it wasn't an abandoning of the faith. It was just a parting of ways. But the point is, it's messy. And we should expect a mess because we're a mess. But that doesn't mean we should give up on the church. It just means that we need to recognize it's going to be messy. But living out the Christian life is not just messy because the church is flawed and people let us down. It's also messy because, again, sometimes it's hard to know the right thing to do. Should Timothy have been circumcised or not? That's a really complex question. I tend to think that Paul and Timothy got it right because there's no indication in the past that they got it wrong. But the point is, figuring out what to do in the Christian life sometimes is just hard. Now again, hear me clearly. I'm not talking about the clear commands of Scripture here. What the Bible says clearly, we should follow. But in areas where it gets more difficult, the gray areas where it's hard to figure out what should we do in this situation, it's in those situations that we need to seek the counsel of other Christians and pray that the Spirit would give us wisdom. Because we live in a messy world, and so sometimes living out the Christian faith is just complex. And so we should be gracious to others as they're trying to do the same. What you think is right and what another Christian thinks is right may differ in some cases. And where Scripture is not clear, we should be gracious. Now again, where Scripture is clear, we should agree. We should say, yep, the Bible clearly teaches this. Where Scripture is not clear in these gray areas, we should be gracious to one another. Because the world is a mess, living out our faith is a mess, we're a mess. And because that's the case, we should not be surprised when messiness finds us. So that's the second response to the passage. In light of the fact that sometimes the mission gets messy because the church is messy, we should expect a mess. Lastly, though, in light of the fact that despite the mess, God leads and directs his people and advances his kingdom, we should learn to trust God even in the mess. Now, I find verses 6 to 10 of this passage to be strangely comforting. Paul and his companions try to go to Asia, but the Holy Spirit forbids them. Then they try to go to Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus doesn't allow them. Now again, we're not entirely for sure what that even means, but somehow God is blocking their way. But eventually they get to where God wanted them to go, which is to Macedonia. Now I'm sure that for the disciples, this initial blocking of what they were wanting to do was frustrating, because they had these plans and they were getting thwarted. But hear this, where the disciples were planning, God was determining their steps. In the end, God got them where they needed to be. And that's why I find verses 6 to 10 to be strangely comforting. I say strangely comforting because when I first read the passage, I think that must have been frustrating. But then I think about the fact that God had a better plan and that his frustration of their plans was so that they could accomplish the better plans. It's a reminder to me that God is at work even in the mess. He's at work even when things aren't going the way that we want. In this area, I have to say, I've learned a ton from my son these last couple of years. And the biggest thing I've learned from him is you can trust God to get you where you're going, even if the path is messy and unexpected. To share a story that Tanya shared on Caring Bridge a couple weeks ago, Tanya and Dawson were recently having a conversation where they were talking about if his disease would ever end. And Dawson acknowledged it probably won't. But then he told Tanya that he was okay with this because, quote, it was God's good design. And then he elaborated by talking about how because of his disease, He's grown his relationship with Christ. On top of that, more people have heard about Jesus. And so in Dawson's mind, God is at work in the mess. Now, I'm just going to be honest with you. I don't always have that same level of faith as Dawson. Sometimes I just feel sorry for him. And if I'm honest, sometimes I just feel sorry for myself. But this passage, in my son's perspective, remind me, the world is messy. Things don't always go how we'd planned. But we can trust God even in the mess. In this passage... Paul and Barnabas split ways in an ugly fashion. Again, there's no way of sugarcoating and saying, oh, that was good. It wasn't. 
But despite that mess, God doubles the missionary teams and the word spreads further. Paul and Silas try to go to places that clearly need Jesus, but God prevents them. He sends them another direction, and eventually, eventually, Lydia comes to faith in Christ and her household too. And the word spreads to a whole new region. God was at work in the mess. So I just want to encourage you this morning. I don't know what troubles you're going through. I suspect they might be really serious. And I suspect some of you are really discouraged this morning. Maybe your health is failing. Maybe a loved one's dying. Maybe you feel betrayed by someone in the church. Maybe you're cut off from a son or daughter. Maybe you're struggling with depression and anxiety. I don't know what you're going through. I'm not saying it's easy. But here's what I do know. Even in the mess, God is leading and directing his people, and so you can trust him. People will let you down. Circumstances will fail you. Loved ones will die. The church will disappoint us. Our plans will be thwarted. The world is messy. But there is one operating the mess that we can trust. And my encouragement to you this morning is look to Look to him because he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. Look to him because at all times he's working all things according to the counsel of his plan. So in summary, I would say this. I know that this passage in Acts sounds a lot like other passages in the book of Acts, but it's worth listening to anyway. It reminds us that the mission of the church is proclaiming Christ. It gently helps us see that the mission gets messy sometimes because we're messy. But more than anything, I think this passage is reminding us there is one that we can trust operating in the midst of the mess. And so church, even though this passage may be familiar, let me encourage you not to tune it out this morning, but instead to make it your goal to proclaim Christ, to recognize that the world will be messy, and more than anything, to look to the one who's operating in the midst of the mess. We can trust him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the reminder here of your word about what our mission is, about the mess of the world, but ultimately about your good character. And this morning, we pray that we would look to you. There are some in here, no doubt, who are going through really, really deep waters today. I'm sure there are many who are going through deep waters that I don't have any idea what's going on. And maybe no one else in the world does. It's something they're wrestling with personally. Father, I pray that for those who are going through the fire today, they would know that you are beside them. And that you are a God who operates in the mess. In fact, that is most uh, clearly seen in the fact that Jesus entered into the broken world. He came to the mess. And he did so to fix them. So God, help us to look there. And because of what he's done, help us to have courage to proclaim him to others. In Christ's name we pray all this. Amen. So one of the things we want to do here at Free Money Free is value prayer. And so we are going to pray here for the next five minutes or so. And specifically, I just want us to pray for one thing this morning. I want us to pray that we would be a church and that we would be people who grow in proclaiming Christ. Earlier in the passage, I challenged us that we should start praying daily that God would give us opportunities to proclaim Jesus to lost people. And so let's start that today. We can at least get it off our list for today. We've done it today. Let's pray that God would help us to grow in our proclamation of the good news to lost people. So let's pray for about five minutes and then I'll close this down. Go ahead, start praying.
Father, I pray that you would help us to grow in our desire to reach the lost with the gospel, and I pray that you would give us opportunities. When we look at the book of Acts, we see that their driving passion every day was to wake up, proclaim Christ. And Lord, we don't want to romanticize that to the point that we say they never did anything else. We, we realize they still live normal life. But God, we do want to have a similar passion and desire to make Christ known to lost people. Lord, I pray that you would work in us. I pray that you would work in me. Give me a greater boldness and give me a greater desire to proclaim you to a lost and dying world. I pray that you would use this church to advance your kingdom, not because somehow we're worthy of being used, but just because you're a gracious God. So please, Lord, be at work in our church body. In Christ's name, amen. All right, you can stand now for our benediction. One last verse here. We want the word of God to have the last word. It's actually going to be the Great Commission from Matthew 28. It says this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You're dismissed. Have a great week.